Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. And no, folks, I did not land either uh, Stan Druckenmiller or Warren Buffett for this uh, video here. Um, but we are going to be talking through uh, an analysis of recent comments that, that that both of these titans of investing have made over the past week. Uh, I'm joined today, um, as usual, at the end of the week by the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the uh, one of the uh, endorsed advisory firms uh, by Wealthion. I'm joined here by John Lodra and Mike Preston. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here at the end of the week. Um, we've had a lot of recordings this week that maybe we can touch on in a bit uh, that, that you know have run on Wealthion, but I, I want to dig into some of the key takeaways from what both Druckenmiller and Buffett uh, had to say recently. Um, let's start, John, if we can, with you. Um, uh, Druckenmiller just spoke at the uh, Sone conference in New York on May 9th, um, made uh, some some pretty declarative points about his level of concern for where things are headed. I know you took some good notes. Uh, would you mind if I ask you to start going through your notes and then we'll just sort of respond to them as you make them? Yeah. Hello, Adam. Great to be back with you and, and happy to kind of uh, share what I've distilled from the, the comments by Druckenmiller. He is a legend. And uh, we like him because he's uh, he's pretty he's pretty straight straight talker. In fact, he'll oftentimes say, I, "I got no ideas," or you know, he'll talk about how they, you know, his style will just stand aside and take some big bets when when the fat pitches come. Um, you know, in his in his broad comments, and it was a, a great hour long interview or so. Um, I forget who the interviewee uh, was, but uh, the guy interviewing him was also a legend. Um, but um, you know, drug put it simply, he says this is by far the hardest environment in his 45 plus years uh, presently uh, that he's seen. And he, what he mean, but means by that hard is to, to really call with conviction uh, any any fat pitches that are present right here and now. So his, his takeaway here is that um, he has no doubt there will be fat pitches, but right here and now there's, there's a very challenging uh, market. He uh, advises conservatism, waiting it out, so to speak, which you know, in, invariably means sitting heavy in cash and, and short-term treasury bills, things like that. But he, um, you know, he, he's a, a historian of markets, not only his 45 years, but he goes back uh, throughout history and studies markets. He said, you know, what is pretty clear, and this may sound like, you know, obvious stuff, but what is very clear is the worst economic outcomes uh, follow asset bubbles. And he said the asset bubble that we have been in and are still in um is the worst, not only in his 45 years of, of investing, but in all the asset bubbles he studied over history, um, worst meaning the most extreme. And again, uh, it's it's pretty pretty clear from history that the, the worst economic, economic outcomes uh, uh, follow those kinds of environments. Um, he, he made reference to every, every time that interest rates got below 2%, um, that they ultimately are followed by very, very bad economic outcomes. And, and this goes back 500 years. There was, there was a reference to a book by, um, who was it? Um, uh, Chancellor, Ed Chancellor. Uh, and it goes back over 500 years of, of studying interest rates. Um, no, basically, he's highly critical of the Fed, like like we and others, uh, I think, rightly should be. Um, he said, you know, look, I can't, I, I'm shocked that the Fed kept the pedal to the metal uh, in the wake of the the COVID response, you know, as you know, Dogecoin and other speculative assets were going through the moon, stocks were were reaching all time highs. Um, he, he's just shocked at how how um, late to the tightening game the Fed was, and then slammed on the brakes like no time in history. Um, 
you know, basically he's pretty emphatic that he sees very little likelihood of a soft landing. He's very firmly of the mind that we're going to see a hard landing, which he defines as, um, you know, uh, a drop in 20 plus percent drop in corporate profits. And he emphasized the plus there. So he sees a, a very steep drop in corporate profits. He sees unemployment rate going above five, five percent from its current 3.4 or wherever it is. Um, uh, a rise in bankruptcies, he sees, and he, he points to the, the banking crisis as just kind of an emblematic uh, situation that will likely, you know, look 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 like you know wider bankruptcies throughout the uh, the, the corporate sector. I did note anecdotally, I did see a, a chart uh, today or yesterday. Uh, there's record repeat bankruptcies. You know, basically companies that filed bankruptcy and then filed bankruptcy again. Uh, we're right now seeing, uh, I think, records maybe going back to 2007, but off the charts, you know, rarely seen repeat bankruptcies. That plays into Drucken Miller's uh, comments there. Um, but those are the big things. You know, he basically he, he sees on the other side of this hard landing some some very specific uh, areas of potential. I, maybe we can get into those a little later. But, you know, that's the big takeaway. Very much uh, sees a hard landing coming and. Um, and uh, that there, there will be much better opportunities on the other side of that than, than exists, exists now. Okay, thanks. Very useful. Um, those were comments from the Sohn conference um, on May 9th. On May 1st, uh, he also gave a keynote speech uh, at USC. And, you know, it's interesting, John, is largely what you were talking about was sort of his concerns about a, a hard landing here, kind of in the here and now. Right, like later this year, you know, some of the stuff that he's expecting. His speech at USC, um, you know, he was talking to a, a university audience, his younger people in it, and he really was focused on what he sees coming down in the next couple of decades. And it's, you know, it's it's, it's no less pessimistic than what you just laid out there. And, and I want to just note a couple of things here. Um, First, he sort of started by saying, hey, I'm going to give you guys some scary stats and let me tell you why you should care. Um, he said, uh, if nothing changes, right, if we don't change the trajectory that we're currently on right now, pensions tomorrow will be a fraction of what they are today and the government won't be able to pay for more than half of your health care bills. So he kind of starts jolting folks awake like, OK, <laughs> you know, you're you're expecting a better tomorrow, you know. If we don't change our behavior, you better readjust your expectations downwards. Um, he then talks about how uh, entitlement spending, you know, has really skyrocketed over the past couple of decades. He says today we spend six times more per senior than we spend per child in the U.S. Right um, now, maybe that makes you know a lot of sense to you know, aging boomers and silent generation folks, and hey, we paid into the system, we're in our twilight years, we we, we want to be, you know, understandably supported. Um, but just when you sort of think of a of, of the state of a nation, you know, you you almost want it to be flipped where you're, you're putting the most of your investment in the people that are going to have the most productive uh, impact on society going forward. Um, but he says, today, almost 40% of all our taxes are spent on seniors, um, in 25 years at current trajectory, we'll be uh, spending on seniors will grow to take 70% of all taxes. So forget about the debt service payments, forget about paying for the military, forget about paying for education or roads or anything like that. Like just seven out of, uh, you know, 70 cents out of every dollar is just going to be going to be spent on uh, senior uh, entitlement programs. 
Um, so he, he has a, a, a look, there's a ton of stats and charts to back all this stuff up. I'm just giving you kind of the quick highlights here. Um, so he basically says, look, we've got this big demographic issue that we're kind of ignoring right now, but it has an expiration date where the status quo just can't continue going forward. He then opines and says, look, you know, we, we had some golden opportunities to to, to kind of address this issue or at least reduce uh, the severity of it um, over the past 10 years. Um, but we didn't. Uh, we just kind of blew it. Um, and uh, uh, normally when when you know things are booming, that's when you you know have your lowest deficits, maybe even in certain cases, try to run a surplus, try to put money in the bank for a rainy day. Uh, he basically talks about how um, uh, you know we we've done nothing but run deficits uh, over the past decade. Uh, he talks about how I'm getting, he's got a chart he shows here, so I'll pull it up here. Um, but he he shows how we ran uh, in in one of our best years for GDP. Um, we ran a deficit um, of over one trillion dollars. He said never in history has a booming economy produced a worst fiscal result. Never. Um, expect the trend to continue absent ra radical policy changes. So he's basically just saying we're at the point now where even when we're, we're quote unquote, booming economically, we're still digging the hole deeper, right? So in terms of the trajectory we're on, you know, we're basically just accelerating speed to the downside. Um, let's get another chat that I'll a chart that I'll try to put up here, but he talks about um, you know, our, our, our fiscal gap, which basically is sort of our, our, our deficit spending. He said, today that measure is 7.7% of GDP up from 7.2% um, when he actually made a similar presentation at USC 10 years before. Um, but uh, he, he basically says, look, um, that's worse than most other countries. But also he said, if if we were to try to close this fiscal gap, right? If we were to try to get things back into alignment, the it would be equivalent to a forty percent increase in all federal taxes collected, um, or an immediate and permanent cut of thirty five percent in federal spending, right? I mean, just things that at this point there's just no way we could do them, right? They would just send the system into fatal shock, right? So again, he's just really trying to underscore sort of, you know, the the, the dark math of the current state we're in and the trajectory we're on. I'll, I'll make one last comment here and then I'll wrap it up. Um, he says, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is, is right now our politicians are refusing to, to deal with the fact that the entitlement uh, well is going to be dry if we keep draining it at this level. And he says, the longer that we delay in trying to, you know, address it head on and, and start to make some reforms, um, he says the, only, the problem only gets worse um, as interest payments keep building. And here's what he says. He says, to give you a sense of how bad it could get with interest rates at 5%, which is where they are today, interest payments every year would grow to be as big as the entire COVID relief of 2020, right? Those, those unprecedented trillions that we were doing in that emergency situation, that's just going to become status quo going forward at the current trajectory. So this chart that, this chart that I have up here says, um, interest payments will go from 8% of government outlays to 27% by 2050. This is a nightmare for future economic growth, investment, and productivity, and of course, you, the future taxpayer. Here's his punchline from this whole thing. He says, it's time that we let go of the false pretense that cutting entitlements is a choice. It is not. Either we cut them today 
or we will have to cut them much more tomorrow. So, all right, guys, so we just dumped a lot of negativity on the viewers here, um, but it's not our negativity. It's coming from one of, like I said, the current living titans of investing. And so I want to make sure that folks, you know, are kind of aware, look, they're, they're, we can still debate arguments of whether there's going to be a soft landing, maybe even, uh, you know, somehow we avoid a landing at all this year. I personally don't think it's going to happen, but it could. we got to be open to it. The market may do better this year than many folks think. But there's a lot of just big issues here that um, have to challenge folks' blind optimism in the system. And, and because of how serious they are, how steeped in data they are, and how they're being brought to us by you know such a credible guy like, like Stan Druckenmiller, is the average investor just has to ask themselves, okay, what could I, should I be doing today to prepare for this type of future if it indeed unfolds? So um, I want to talk, I want to make that the series, the, the focus of, of our conversation today. Um, real quick before we, we delve into the, that head on, I do want to talk about some of the key things that came out of uh, the recent Berkshire Hathaway uh, annual investors meeting. Uh, because in many ways they're kind of complementary to Druckenmiller's points there. Um, real quick, Mike, I just want to let you into the conversation here um, before I, I ask you guys some of these questions about some things that Buffett said. But anything to add to what what John or I just said right now? Well, a couple of things jumped off the page of me here, Adam, as I'm listening to you guys and taking a look at my notes. Well, first of all, on your last point there about entitlements. I know it's cynical, but uh, you know, given the choice between cutting entitlements now and cutting them a lot more later, which do you think our policymakers will choose? You know, sadly, I, I say let's keep talking about it. Let's try to get some awareness over the problem. But I, but I fear that it's going to be the latter path that they take. They're going to cut them a lot more later, potentially, under duress or under emergency conditions, or they're going to think that they can use the old trick of just printing more money to pay for them. That's worked so long. So, you know, why not continue to try them? It's a, it's a pretty dire circumstance overall. And I know that our talk is pretty negative, but it's because the backdrop is pretty negative. You know, just, just look at what Stan Druckenmiller said, like, like John um, cited him as saying that we're in the worst bubble in history. I, I agree. I think we're in the worst bubble in history. And if you agree with that, then you realize we're in trouble and and the fed and other central banks have gone all in to make sure that it stays the largest bubble in history because that bubble falling apart crushes stocks it crushes uh pension funds it crushes real estate values which in turn crush receipts of towns and cities and states uh it's it's a bad situation you just cited a minute ago i think that within five years, or maybe you said within by 2050, that 27% of uh, tax receipts would go to interest. I, I heard others recently say that if the 10 year went to 10%, 10 to 12%, that 100% of tax receipts would, would um, go towards interest payments. So everything's kind of resting on the head of a pin here. And it's because the fact that the United States has the world's reserve currency status and everyone in the world needs it and they need the collateral to you know, kind of move money around in the credit system that we get away with it. But the Schiller PE, which is a 10-year kind of smooth price-to-earnings ratio, inflation-adjusted is still at around 30, maybe a little bit higher, depending upon what data source you look at. If you look at corporate profit margins, they're 
they're unduly high because of government deficit spending and just the trillions and trillions of dollars that have been poured into the system, just $7 trillion since COVID has short-term spiked corporate profit margins. I think that you said that Druckenmiller uh, expected maybe a 20% drop in, in earnings. Well, that's you know, with S&P earnings somewhere around, I think maybe 180 a share, if I remember correctly. I mean, that would knock it down quite a bit which would, of course, take uh, the shine off the stock market. So, and lastly, you know, for, for years and years now, we've been arguing, well, you know, everything's high, housing is high, stocks are high because rates are at zero. Well, rates were pushed to zero to recapitalize the banking system after the, the housing crisis of 2008. And we kind of, I, th- I think in our community, the money management community, we kind of convinced ourselves you've got to buy the market, although we didn't do that by and large. But in general, our industry convinced ourselves that we had to buy the market and individuals bought the market because there was no alternative. Now, for almost a year, short-term interest rates have been at 5% and the market is still a few percent from its high. The message here is, I, I think a lot of these people you're that you've got on your show and some very highly respectable names like like Druck and others, they're at the risk of sounding like Cassandra's, we're all out there saying, take defensive action, move out of stocks to a large extent, buy some gold and silver, own some real assets, reduce your risk, hold a bunch of cash for better opportunities, because this time is not different. This is the largest bubble in our lifetime. I'm convinced of it. I think the bear market started in December of 21. So we're going on 15, 16 months now of what's probably the largest bear market in our lifetimes. It doesn't feel like it because it's slow moving. And there's this this utterly unbreakable belief in the Fed that they're not going to let the market fall. But history says it's going to be different. And, um, you know, central banks are not gods. I, I, I do believe that those efforts will fail at some point and the market will revert to a more normal valuation. The market would have to fall to 1800 or below on the S&P to deliver eight to 10% returns, you know, by our research. So, you know, that's a drop of over 50% from here, 50, that, that 60%. pretty catastrophic drop from here. Yeah. And that wouldn't even be undervalued, you know? So um, it's, it's a difficult place. We try to be optimistic, optimistic about opportunities in the future and optimistic that finally you can at least get 5% on safe money while you wait. Yeah. All right. So, um, look, uh, we're going to have Lance on this weekend for the weekly market recap. I'm, I'm going to lean on him hard to reiterate the bullish side of the story here, um, because, yeah, as you said here, uh, Mike, you know, a lot of this stuff does seem pretty pessimistic. And I, and I just want to give it its due for a moment here with this this particular video, um, because we're just seeing such a confluence of, you know, a lot of the folks that have been on the Wealthy On channel recently. A lot of people accuse me of, of recruiting for bears. I don't. I literally just recruit for people that have a data-driven approach to share with us what their data is telling us. And you know, just a preponderance of them are saying, hey, my data is telling me things that, that aren't very encouraging. This week alone, you know, we had Stephanie Pomboy, who's uh, you know, totally a macro analyst. She looks at, at the fundamental data. Uh, she gave, you know, a, 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 a great uh you know, discussion slash excoriation of the data as to why she thinks that things are going to pick up to the downside in terms of, of you know, the forces of deflation winning over. We then had two technical analysts this this week who really try to, in many cases, not even 
take the macro data into consideration and just be influenced by price action, they are bearish uh, in terms of their outlooks from what the price action is telling them. But then, and now here's, here's where I want to go over into the results from the Berkshire Hathaway meeting is, you know, we have these legends of investing, Druckenmiller and, and Buffett. And Buffett, you know, he runs an operating company, right? I mean, he runs a company that owns, you know, big companies. It's all run by great operators. They're all about trying to say, hey, can we buy great assets at great values and then operate them to create even more value for us? So he's definitely in the world of like, how is the economy running? How do I manage and run a business to take advantage of what's happening in the economy? And he said, the majority of our businesses will report lower earnings this year than last year. Um, so he is he's really quite sour about economic growth going forward. Um, he, his quote was that America's, quote unquote, incredible period is coming to an end. Now, he's not giving up on America and he thinks that, you know, this is something that we will get through. But he thinks that we'll definitely be going through a trough a correction for some decent period of time here. When he mentioned that Berkshire's businesses were going to uh, report lower earnings than the prior year, um, Charlie Munger, his partner, uh, piled on and, and just sort of looked to the audience and said, get used to making less, folks, right? So, you know, when you get guys that are this experienced and have this much of a viewpoint into where the economy is headed, like you really got to take this stuff with a lot of credence and a lot of weight because these guys, you know, I can bring on folks on this channel and we can opine all day long, but these are the guys that are actually, you know, driving the economy or have just the arc of, you know, multi-decades of being some of the, the country's most successful investors. Um, uh, I do want to talk about some of the other key issues that, um, that uh, both Buffett and, and Munger brought up there. Um, but but sort of at a high level, the key takeaway was warning about, you know, the downshift in economic growth. And John, this comports with Druckenmiller's, uh, you know, forecast of a 20% decrease in corporate profit. Um, but they are quite bearish on what's happening in the real estate markets. Um, and they are, they're really wary of the banking system. Now, they, they basically said, look, you know, folks shouldn't freak out about the banking system. Uh, depositors should feel safe. Um, and they even said Berkshire, like it was in 2008, it's standing at the ready to help patch, you know, any cracks in the in the dam if they appear. Um, but they're saying we, we probably don't think that's going to happen. But that said, they're not investing in bank stocks, um, ex save for Bank of America, which is a longstanding position that they've had there uh, at Berkshire. It seems like they've pretty much gotten out of all their other uh, banking positions and are not looking to take any on. So, you know, it's a real sort of sign of... Uh, skepticism slash concern uh, in the U.S. banking system. So, so John, just coming back to you for a second, I'll, I'll mention one or two other things here. But, um, you know, when you hear comments like that being made from somebody of like Buffett's and, and, and Munger's tenure, you know, I assume that you as a capital manager have to say, OK, I got to prepare then whether I agree or not, although I'm sure you probably largely agree, but you got to prepare in, in your portfolio allocation for your clients for the type of, of you know, storm clouds and and Stormwatch that they they seem to be seeing ahead, correct? Absolutely. That's you know we're not in this for sport. We work with real people who uh, the money that they entrust to us is is oftentimes the entirety of their life's work, and and uh, it's real important stuff. Um, I want to be really clear though, like and, and Mike touched upon this, and I'll just I'll just expound on it. You know, we the optimism that that we ultimately have is is by knowing that we and investors in general 
have the choice as to how to position assets. And, you know, the reason why all these things we just talked about are concerning is put that next to where assets are valued. Therein lies the concern. Assets are valued in such a way that aren't discounting these problems, right? Um, we could argue that if, if stocks were priced low enough, all these problems would be, you know, irrelevant from an investment yeah. standpoint, because, you know, even in bad bad situations, investments can do well if they're priced properly. Um, so I just want to be very, very clear. We we are ultimately optimistic in that we, we think ultimately the price will, uh, broadly speaking, get to levels that will you know, still make investing very uh, productive and 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 uh, rewarding, uh, but it's you know we gotta we, we gotta get the market price in a lot of these big structural things that are not currently priced in. Um, so so yeah, um, absolutely. That, that's what what keeps us. We, Mike and I are, are, are tech technicians, technical analysts at, at heart as well. I just uh, earlier this week I attended a, a conference. Uh, the the name National Association of Active investment manager. It was a great conference. There was a, a, a healthy exchange of uh, tactics, ideas. And, and one of the one of the key key speakers was uh, Tony Dwyer, the chief market strategist from Canaccord Genuity. And he, he put it like this, like, wow, I've never seen the fundamental case and the technical case be be more at odds. And because there's plenty of bullish technical stuff out there. I mean, you look at the S&P or, or look at the NASDAQ, forget about price to earnings multiples and stuff like that. The price action is very bullish. Um, it's, it's very bullish. Um, even the S&P, you know, we've broken out of a, a, a downtrend and we're, you know, the 50 days above the 200 day, a lot of classic um, technical indicators. You can make a bullish read on them. But when you when you overlay the reality of the fundamental backdrop and, and earnings, it's, it's kind of like, well, how how reliable are you willing to, to take these indicators as? Because the fundamental case is very, very dark. Um, and and Tony based Tony Dwyer, the you know the, the speaker there said, look, someone's gonna someone's gonna fail miserably here. And he 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 leaned very heavily towards the fundamental case being right. Um, and I wanted to share a quick quick chart here, just to um, if I could, just to kind of um, you know uh, we we. You know, we're all we were lucky to have uh, Michael Kantrowicz on your program several weeks ago, and he talked about the hope framework. And I know the uh, uh, jobless claims numbers are starting to come through here uh, for that E. Um, and I found a chart uh, today um, that that got to that. Let me just let me just find that and pull that up. Uh, bear with me here, because I, I think it, it 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 really starts to put things in perspective, at least on that that component. Yeah, and, and while you're looking for it, when you say that that the, the jobless claims numbers are beginning to come through for the E. You know, Michael Kantrowitz's hope framework says that there's a, a progression that history shows you, you follow when you fall into recession or recover from one. And it's it, the acronym for the progression spells hope that that E, the E in hope, the last phase of the progression uh, going into recession is that um, employment starts weakening. And that's been kind of the, the rock solid bulwark against recession to date. But now with some revised data that's been coming out and then uh, these most recent uh, uh, jobless claims data that that uh, John's talking about that just got announced today, um, it, it all of a sudden shows that that employment is beginning to really weaken in a noticeable way here. Still very early on, 
but it's the strength that we've seen seems to be ebbing and beginning to maybe ebb relatively quickly. So take it away, John. Yeah. So hopefully you can see this chart and I apologize if I was, you know, had it over your, your face as you were talking. Uh, but this is, I want to give uh, proper credit to EPP research who pulled this chart together. Uh, but it's basically a, a chart of the six month annualized growth rate and continuing claims. And you can see a, a very strong spike here. Um, historically, you know, the average recession start is when that hits 25% year over year or six months annualized growth rate. We're at 40, almost 42%. You can see, you know, just, just one of many indicators, but it's a very, you know, you look at the history of this thing and it's, it's, it's very, uh, very highly correlated with recessionary periods. Um, but yeah, the fundamental case. And, and again, I just want to emphasize, it's all about price. If, if stocks were 30, 40 for, 50% lower, price lower than here, we wouldn't have such concerns or, or not nearly as such concerns because they'd be priced into the market. And, and they're categorically not right now is our very strong opinion. Right. And you guys have been warning about that forever. And, and what's so interesting, again, going back to the, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting for a second, um, one of the things that's different about where we find ourselves right now versus, say, the past decade or so when asset prices have had been still very stretched Um is that there finally is an alternative, right? So with interest rates as high as they are um, over in, in safe bonds like U.S. Treasuries, um, there's a place for capital that is, is uh, uncomfortable to go park itself in safety and actually get paid something material. And actually now, as of like this week with the latest CPI data, you're actually getting a real return, you know, sitting in T-bills right now, right? Which hasn't been the case for, for an awfully long time. And, and there was a stat... Let's see if I can find it here from um, from the uh, the uh, Berkshire meeting. Um, oh gosh, it's here somewhere. But it was basically saying that uh, I think Berkshire holds I think 130 billion in cash on their balance sheet. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, here we go. Uh, it's Ber uh, Berkshire is set to collect about five billion in interest from its roughly 130 billion in cash and treasury bills this year. Um, that's a lot of money, folks. I mean, just get a free five billion for for just sitting there in T bills isn't isn't so bad. But what's crazy is a, just a few years ago, that same return was about fifty million, right? So given where interest rates have gone, uh, they've gone from getting a relatively paltry fifty million on their hundred plus billion in cash to now five billion, which is you know really meaningful. So of course, if you can do that, you know one of the things that Buffett and Munger talked a lot about is, hey, we're just we're not making any acquisitions right now because we just can't find something we're excited enough to buy at today's current valuations, and so they're just going to park there in bonds, right? So you know that's really going to be a deterrent of capital flooding into the equity markets, and to be honest, it's going to be like a vacuum of money coming out of the equity markets uh, as people increasingly, if they increasingly continue to get concerned about the macroeconomic picture and just <clears throat> want to sit on the sidelines in safety. And like I said, for, for 2009 through 2021, you, you couldn't really do that. You know, if you sat on the sidelines, uh, you, your, your cash returned you nothing and you were just, it was just getting eroded by loss of purchasing power. So people, you know, felt that they had to chase yield or even worse, if you were planning to live on a fixed income from the you know the interest of your savings, you couldn't. And so you had you know lots of seniors that were getting pushed out on the risk curve and being in assets they never should have been in. And then of course we had the the correction of 2022, and a lot of seniors just saw their retirement you know 
portfolios, you know, all of a sudden be 20, 25, 30% lower than at the start of the year. And, and, and now they're in a really tough position. So point there being, um, uh, you know, there are dynamics going on here right now where the choices you make with your capital and how you position now are, are, are going to be really important. And, and, and a lot of these dynamics are going to start impacting asset prices in a way that that could very likely, to your point, John, could start beginning to bring down those excessive valuations, right? As more money finally has a safety valve to go to. So um, maybe I'll ask you, John, and then Mike will go to you real quickly. Um, so as a capital manager, being a steward of, of your client's money, like, how are you thinking about, you know, the steps to take given this macro environment of all these risks that we've been talking about, but but that Druck and Miller and, and Buffett and Munger are bringing to the forefront this week? Yeah, well, the first thing is is we have a deep toolkit, and and uh, you know we like to use the analogy of of football as as how we position. You know, the first thing to de determine is should we be on offense or defense, and there's shades of gray to that. Of course, it's not a, a light switch kind of thing. But even within that context, let's say we're on, on offense, right? Let's say we get a pullback in the market, even a modest one. You know, uh, any coach on a football squad or a football team, and I'm talking American football here, um, is, is going to call some plays, right? And they're going to run the plays that make sense for where they are on the field. Uh, if, if they're on the field with their backs to their own goal line, they're going to run different plays than if if um they're knocking at the opponent's goal line and that's kind of you know how valuations come in you know the notion of hey are we still richly valued but we got a, a short-term pullback and, and we want to add some exposure we have tools like options that we can use covered calls and protective puts uh to basically allow us to 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 toe dip in or or put meaningful uh long positions on even if we're nowhere near what we might consider fair value but it's got to be a combination of some retreat and some moderation of of those factors and some of the technicals but we also look at at things and and Druck talked about this even in the period of 66 to 82 the market went nowhere or thereabouts but he said there was you know certainly bull markets along the way but it's also about sector rotation picking those sectors so we use tools like relative strength where we systematically sort through and compare every sector and every geography against each other and can glean out those areas that even in an otherwise tricky market are exhibiting relative strength and, and outperformance or at least greater resilience on the downside uh, uh, as compared to others. So th this whole toolkit we bring together to you know, try to, uh, again, define what, what team is on the field, but then you know, making sure we have the right players on the field within that regime. And I'm Great. sure we can add, yeah. It, 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 let me clarify something there. So um, you guys, obviously, I would say probably more than the average financial advisor out there, right, are, are eyes wide open about the risks that we've been talking about here and uh, are taking largely a defensive stance in this type of market, right? You're nodding as I'm saying this. Um, but what you're not doing is saying, oh, you know, we just recommend, you know, being 100% in cash and just sitting here doing nothing. I know you guys hold a pretty healthy cash balance right now, but but what you're sort of saying there is is for the type of market that we are highly likely to to go into, yes, you've got to be defensive, but but you know you, you need to still see how the game is being played. And as you talked about things like sector rotation and whatnot, it's a matter of saying, okay, great. Well, how can we play in this market while protecting enough of our downside risk, either by having a higher cash allocation and or using you know options for hedging, for downside protection, stuff like that. It, it, it's really, you know, 
kind of, I don't want to change the analogy, analogy to a dance, but it's, it's really, you're trying to figure out, you know, how to dance with this market we have, or maybe how to play football with the market we have. You're, 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 what I want to underscore for folks is that you're not just saying, oh, just don't play the game, right? I mean, that might be better than going all in on speculative assets while valuation is still super high. But the way to build wealth over time is to be prudently active as conditions uh, merit in this market rather than just a head in the sand approach is what I'm trying to clarify for folks here. Yeah, and I'll let Mike, you know, Mike can certainly expound on that. You know, we we together and our team, you know, work, work really hard to, you know, work through our investment committee. But, you know, Mike, why don't you come on in here and share a little bit about, uh, you know, how we look at that and some of the things that are on our radar. Yeah, like you just said, Adam, um, if the choice is between fully invested in equities and fully invested in cash, I'd say all day long, choose fully invested in cash. So, no, we're not saying don't play the game and we're not saying go all to cash. However, we do talk to a number of people that are all in cash. And I've got to say, that's not a terrible thing for the very short term. Right. If in you know, doubt, you just don't know what to hurt. do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a long term yeah, wealth building so, strategy either. So, you know. Exactly. It's not a long term wealth building strategy, but it's not terrible given the other choices for right now. But we're not in, we're not allocated 100% to cash and like john said we have a lot of different tools that we can use you know i think that our best success is going to come from layering into the market which we believe is in a historic bear market slowly with different tranches and with hedges attached to them so you know we're currently only about 5 to 10% net exposed to the stock market right here and we have close to 50% short term cash equivalents we might Add 10 or 15% down at 35 or 3,600 on the S&P. We might double that slice to another 20% down at 3,200, something like that, if we fell quickly. Each of those would be attached to hedges, each of which we would be looking to trade in and out of as the market worked its way lower. Here's the problem. The market could reach 3,200 and then crash to 1,600 right after that and still not be woefully undervalued. That's the type of market that we're in. All of these things are possibilities. I wouldn't say they're likelihoods, but they're possibilities, particularly because valuations are so extremely high. They could they could literally fall two-thirds from their from their all-time high of 4,800 on the S&P just to get the long-term fair value. We seem to have gone into this era the last almost 25 years now where we have to stay permanently overvalued just to keep the system together. The only two forays towards normal valuation was in March of uh, 2002 and another one in, um, I think it was March of, of 2009 was the low. Um, those, you know, those two times. And then of course the, the COVID drop to 2200, that didn't actually reach undervalued. Uh, but it was rescued quickly by the almost $7 trillion in money printing. So each time we've had a reversion towards fair value was quickly reversed with central bank policy. So we never really have had that opportunity. I think we're going to see a regime change in this bear market where the buy the dip starts to fail. And then we have continued waterfall type movements and disappointments. And so a strategy that's layered that's based on support zones, that's hedged, because we will not be exactly right. Some of these tranches will lose money. Hopefully, the hedges will make up for the losses so that we can have a comfortable ride on the way down. And the objective is to get 
more fully invested. And nobody knows exactly how far this market will go, but I'll be the first to say that I'd like to be near 100% invested in equities if equities actually offered a return that's worth that risk. Right now, equities probably offer a negative return, minus 2, minus 3, minus 5% annually over the next 15 years, maybe, certainly 10 to 15 years based on current valuations. And our structure, our way of life seems to be about keeping valuations permanently elevated. We think that's going to fail. Our strategy will work in slowly. But at the same time, there are some things that we think are worth buying today, like gold mining stocks, like emerging market bonds, like long-term high-quality U.S. government bonds, um, commodities in small doses, gold and silver bullion. All of these things we're doing now and encouraging our clients to do now. But we'll have further opportunity as we see this market progress, how we think it's going to progress. And so we're opportunists in that in that regard. And um, there's a big, <laughs> just to wrap up, there is a big compulsion, I know, to just quit and don't play the game. And finally, you can get paid something to walk away. I, I would just say to people, if you're fully invested in some traditional model, then yeah, move the cash and walk away. Let a little time go by. Um, and think about it, reach out to us or, or somebody else you trust if you want to talk about it, and then think of a plan of how you want to move forward. All right. Really well said, Mike. Um, love to keep digging into that, but I, I, I got to start wrapping things up here. Um, two, two questions I just want to get in because they're topical to developments of the week. Um, one is still getting a lot of questions about the debt ceiling and, oh, what's going to happen if, if we don't... Uh, you know, reach an agreement here. Um, you know, personally, all the experts I talk to, myself included, I don't really see an outcome here where there isn't an agreement on the debt ceiling. Now, you know, maybe the Republicans decide to play high stakes poker and, you know, push the government into an initial temporary default to squeeze out the concessions they want. But but I, I don't think any sort of real, you know, uh, authentic default of, of the U.S. government is, is is anyway one of the options here. Of course, if you feel differently about that, let me know. Um, but getting lots of questions of people like, whoa, wait a minute, I, I just bought a bunch of T-bills or you know treasuries. Does that mean they, they could get defaulted on and I'm not going to get paid? I don't believe that there's really any probability for that likelihood. And so I, I just want to you know calm folks' fears on that. But But I'm not the registered financial advisor. So Mike, what do you think? Well, Adam, I can chime in here. I think Mike's having some uh, some computer problems there, but uh, we we too, and and this obviously may come off of sell serving because we are we do have a lot of clients uh, uh, cash equivalents in in short term T bills. Um, I, I don't think there's any real you know realistic scenario where uh, where there is a meaningful you know a technical default like that. Um, the consequences I can't I can't under estimate or over overstate, I should say, the consequences of something like that. When you think about how how pervasive treasury bills and, and things like that uh, serve as collateral throughout the, the financial system, there would be a, a massive, massive catastrophic event in, in our opinion. So I, you know, I, I can't believe that the politicians are that naive to think they can play chicken with that without unleashing uh, an absolute meltdown in financial markets. Um, I don't see it happening. Um, you know, 
I, I wish I could say zero uh, percent, but I would put uh, such a small percentage that it's it's some. And in the meantime, we're getting some you know spike up in Treasury bill yields that I think are are um, inappropriately pricing in a, a fear of that that actually becoming a reality. And you know they're pretty good uh, jumps in yield here in the short term T bills. Right, which actually just, I mean, so let's say yields continue to go up here in the short term. Would you see that as a attractive buying opportunity for those that are interested in getting some of those longer dated treasuries with the expectation that at some point in the next six plus months, you know, the, the Fed will pause and, and then eventually eventually start cutting rates at some point in time and then and then riding that that reversal in rates? Yeah, I don't know that. I, I don't think we see a scenario where the Fed's going to be lowering rates any anytime soon. Um, so, so uh, you know, I think the real short, I mean, the one month bills are, have, have been where the real spikes have been. The the I think the one month went from, um, you know, I think there's like a two 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 percent jump in in yields in a very short period of time. Yeah, although although that came after the one year took a nosedive too. I mean, yes, it, it's exactly really right. Just getting winged around yeah, yeah. um but, but i do to answer your question i do think it's a you know a, a, a perfect time to buy uh again you know we have to <laughs> assume like we do that there isn't going to be a, a real deal fault default i think that again i think that's just not a a, a realistic probability at all um so yeah i mean uh, we, this this little uptick in yields i think is just added added yield to folks holding short-term t-bills okay all right, uh, and Mike, good, good to see you back on here. You're, you're zooming out there just for a moment. Um, the other topical question is, um, so we got the latest inflation uh, report. We got the April inflation uh, readout for uh, this month, uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, or, or two days ago. And um, uh, you came in at, uh, headline CPI came in at 4.9%. Um, which is below the 5% from the month before. But also importantly, it was actually below just about all of the expectations uh, from the major banks and, and analysts. So it was it was a little bit of a surprise to the downside, very little bit, but, but still just a very little uh, surprise to the downside. Um, and, uh, you know, what's interesting is maybe it's happening with a little bit of a delay, uh, but we're seeing a couple interest rate sensitive um, assets like the precious metals uh, you know, while we're recording this um, today, I think silver was down, what, 5%. Um, so, you know, we're seeing some reaction to that. So just real quick, I wanted to give you a chance to opine on on, on anything about this new inflation uh, data point. Well, isn't it funny that we think that 4.9% inflation is a positive surprise? You know, we've just lived through 10 years where inflation was sitting at, at zero. It was actually deflation we were worried about. And right. the Fed and, and said sorry, that- Sorry to interrupt, but for the folks that are going to scream at us in the comments- Officially reported inflation. I yeah, exactly. I anybody mean, we, we who know it's bought stuff in the real world knew that real world price inflation was more. It's kind of funny though. We were at you know near zero reported inflation. The Fed said, "Oh, we're going to target two percent. We're going to target two percent." And then we went right to nine percent overnight. You know, and now we're of course we thought that was an overreaction too. And now we're drifting back, probably back towards four percent long term is probably the new base. Three, maybe high threes, four percent. And you've had a number of guests on your program, I think, that have that have said that they think that might be the case. So it feels about right. So you know that flurry of, of uh, you know, of buying of I bonds that was good for the first six months or so, and inflation kind of shot the moon at nine. But now we're sitting more in the fours. 
But that surprise seems to have you know taken the shine to use upon off gold and silver. Silver, the chart today is taking me aback a little bit because you're right, it's down five percent. Uh, it's taken out the range of the last few weeks. It's a bit concerning at the moment. We'll see what the next day or two brings. Uh, gold is down much more modestly, but uh, silver, which tends to be more volatile, has has taken a big breather today. The the gold stocks. Uh, we're still hanging in there okay with GDX just below 34 at 33.52 right now. So, and gold here closed at uh, 22,020 per ounce. The gold chart is really strong. And even though it's down $16 today, it's still strongly above uh, 2,000 as we speak. Some 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 people that are bearish gold may say on a monthly chart where we're putting in a potential triple top. I suppose that's true, uh, and it's all open to interpretation. But I really think that gold is consolidating and will move through this triple top, close above twenty one hundred, and then move towards twenty five hundred. Um, silver here down a dollar twenty dollar twenty nine, a little bit of a bigger move. We'll see, but it's still above 24, 2436. Maybe we're just sh shaking the weak hands out. So we'll see. I don't think that inflation at 4.9 is a is a is a positive surprise. Maybe short term the market is positively surprised by it, but I think that we've got proof that the people managing these expectations and the actual results really don't have as much control as we think they have. And maybe mm -hmm. we're giving them altogether too much credit. All right. Well, guys, look, thank you so much. Um, we're going to wrap it up uh, time-wise here. Um, John, I'll let you have the, the last word here. Um, again, you guys uh, get contacted by folks uh, all day long uh, who are you know trying to navigate these crazy cross-currents going on here. Um, I'm sure you probably got some extra calls this week, both from some of the, the macro data releases we talked about, but also some of the news you know headlines about what Buffett had to say and what Druckenmiller have had to say. Uh, what would your general advice be to, to just regular people that are trying not to become collateral damage in all this? Yeah, uh, first, don't don't stick your head in the sand. Um, you know, inactivity in that sense can be very damaging. You know, talk it out, talk it out uh, with yourself, with a, with a spouse, a, a trusted advisor. We're happy to have those conversations. Um, but this, this is not a time, I, I think, to just be complacent. Um, you know, re really kind of get in tune with where you are in your life, your financial situation. Uh, are you worried about your job? All the more reason. And, and this is not just about longer term investing. You know, it's, it's about um, making sure you have enough uh, emergency funds and you know, now that cash is, 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 is paying pretty good so long as you have in the right places. By, you know, why not build up your emergency fund a little bigger than it otherwise might be, right? You know, don't be trying to, you know, Put it in the stock market, playing late stage speculative rally here, and and uh, build up that emergency. You know, if 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 you're you know worried about your job security, things like that. These are the kind of financial planning kind of conversations we have with clients that go beyond, you know, just the day to day investment management that we do with them. And, and it's, it really underscores that this is about people's lives here, and, and money is obviously one very important expression of how they can live their lives. But it all comes back to the, the person and the human. Um, and, and uh, you know, having those conversations is, is really important to kind of get unstuck or, or not be complacent. Great. Yeah, I think, you know, the old sort of he who hesitates is lost, right? You know, it, it's it's the folks that it's the steps that you take before 
uh, instability arrives, that are the ones that benefit you, right? By the time the crisis has arised, your option set is dramatically dwindled. Um, and so while we still have, you know, time and the status quo pretty much works the way that it is and markets are currently hovering where they are valuation wise, um, the steps that you take now can really have an outsized impact on, on your future prosperity level. So to your point, John, totally underscore the, the action oriented element of this. Um, for the vast majority of people who have other things to focus on in the world besides the markets, like their jobs, their families, you know, living life, et cetera, highly recommend that, you know, their, their top priority there is to, to pick a good guide in helping them decide which steps to take, you know, giving them good advice and then helping them execute on that. So folks, if you have a good financial advisor who's already playing the role and helping do that for you, fantastic, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion, from uh, one who does take into account everything that we've just talked about in this interview, perhaps even John and Mike themselves and their team there at New Harbor, uh, then consider scheduling a free consultation with the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion. To schedule one of those free consultations, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with these advisors. They just do it as a public service to, as John said, just help people you know, determine what prudent steps they can take today uh, so that if you know, some of these shoes that we're talking about do drop in the future, you're going to be much better off than if you had otherwise not taken those steps. Um, John and Mike, guys, thanks so much again for joining me at the end of the week and for trying out this this new little format where we were reacting to the news versus one of the interviews that we normally do. It's just the way things uh, shaked out this week, but I really did enjoy the conversation. Um, no matter what the markets do from here, folks, John and Mike will be here again next week, uh, helping make sense of it all for all of you. Uh, John and Mike, thanks so much again. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. We enjoyed it, Adam. We'll see you soon. Thanks as always, Adam. We'll see you again next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth, and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we've put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, 
and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-US clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching. Thank you.